Amen. I had a, a Bible up here for Matt, but I see he was too good for that one I laid out for him, so I'll just toss that. Just kidding. No judgment. That's where we're going to start this morning. All right, church, <clears throat> we, are in, uh, we are in Matthew 7, and you should already be there, as Matt was just reading for us. Um, it's been great to preach the Word the past four weeks. Uh, I've never been able to preach a sermon here, a series like this. I've preached sermons before, never a series, week over week. Um, and this has just been great. It's been, it's been, it's been tough for me uh, to adjust to that kind of schedule. Usually I have time to prepare for the first one, and then it's over, but then week over week. Uh, it's, it's a new experience. I hope it's been beneficial for you. It's been formative for me in my heart. Um, something that I need to confess, though, is that I've made a mistake uh, trying to do the Sermon on the Mount in four sermons. <laughs> Uh, this, whew, uh, I don't know if y'all noticed how fast I've been talking, just trying to get through all this stuff. I like to look at every verse and talk about it. And, uh, just this format that I picked was not conducive to really even scratch the surface of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so church, this, this is my prayer. This is what I, this is what I hope you get every time you hear the word preached here, but you get a taste of the treasure trove that is God's word. And that it makes you want to go back to, to your, your quiet place in the mornings and in the evenings whenever you have that. And, and to just seek the Lord in his word. I hope that what you see on Sundays makes you want to dig in more. And, and I hope that's what you've seen in the Sermon on the Mount. You've been like, man, I want to know more about that. It's, your, it's right here. Go. Go learn more about it. Go read it and study it. Right? It's yours. It's what Paul says. that the, the, These treasures are yours. So, so let's take them up. Right? It's right here, it's in your hands, or it's on your phone, or it's in the back of the pews, wherever it is, just, just pick it up. So, so we're wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount today in chapter 7, um, and, and so we've talked about so many things. I think we started by setting the Sermon on the Mount in its context within Matthew. Um, we, we've, we've looked at some of the themes that Matthew's trying to develop about, about showing us who Jesus is, and, and what the kingdom is, and who the people are, are going to be that are going to be in the kingdom um, we talked about how Matthew is, is concerned with showing us that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the fulfillment of the, of the Old Testament prophecies uh, and of all the promises, right? Paul says that, that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus, and that's what Matthew's concerned with. Um, Matthew's also trying to show us, tell us about the kingdom, the, the kingdom of God, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to come through Jesus, that the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like Jesus' inauguration speech, right? He's like, like Jesus is, is like, I'm the king, and, and here's, me, here's me taking the office, right? That I'm the king, and the kingdom's going to come through me. Um, and then finally, I think the big thing I want us to take away from this is that Jesus is ultimately not pointing us to like a, a, a moral or ethical code. Like a, he's, he's not trying to give us rules and regulations to help us live better lives on, on its face, right? He's, what he's doing is he's pointing us towards himself, right? Jesus is pointing us towards the, 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 the reality that salvation only comes through him, right? That, that Jesus isn't giving us a map to a treasure, but Jesus is the map and he is the treasure. Right? That's, that's what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And so in chapter 7, this is Jesus kind of summing things up, um, uh, more so towards the end of 7. Uh, but this is him summing things up. He's kind of tying up, up some loose ends. He's talking about some more kingdom stuff. Uh, he's kind of tying some bows on hypocrisy, uh, obedience, um, and, and he's, he's going to do all these things this morning. Let me give you a little bit of a roadmap here. Uh, he's he's going to do this in a few ways. The first way is he's going to give us three warnings, okay? Uh, we're gonna, he's going to start by giving us three warnings. The first one is the warning of, of being judgmental. 
Uh, the second one is, is the warning of, of, of lacking discrimination and then, or la- lacking discernment. And then the other one is uh, lacking perseverance. And so those are the three warnings Jesus is going to give us. And then in verse 12, he's going to give us one rule, okay? And that one rule is going to be uh, the golden rule, right? And, and we're going to put that really, because the golden rule is often kind of taken out of its context and applied wrongly. We're going to try and put it back in the context the way Jesus meant it to be heard and read. And then uh, Jesus is going to finish uh, by giving us, he's, he's going to talk about two choices that we have. And he's going to do that by going through these pairs. You can see this on the notes here. Uh, he's going to talk about two gates, two giveaways, uh, two goaways. You can see I'm stretching from my alliteration here again. <laughs> and then two groundworks, okay, like two foundations. And so that's our roadmap for, for what Jesus is, is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And so let's, uh, let's, let's dig in this morning. W- would you let me just pray one more time for, for myself, for us? God, we ask for your help this morning. I ask for your help to exposit your word well, that we, would, that we would dive into this word as the treasure trove that it is, your absolute irrevocable truth that you have revealed to us for all time to guide, to show, and to point us to the, to the ultimate reality that Christ is king and that we can only be redeemed through his blood. Lord, I, I pray that that message is clear today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So chapter 7, let's, uh, let's, let's dive in here. Jesus starts with this, with this one verse, judge not that you be not judged. Judge not that you be not judged. And I think how, okay, so this, this is one of those verses that's kind of like ubiquitous in the culture, like everyone knows this verse, right? And I think of it, this, when I hear this verse, I think of all these people that have tattoos that say only God can judge me. I don't know if you've ever seen those. And and if you have one of those tattoos, I'm, I'm not trying to make a judgment about you, but I'm just saying I usually see it on people who look like they've lived lives of regret. So I just want to point that out. So when you have, it's like, it's kind of like people use this verse, this one verse, as a defense against bad behavior or maybe like shady motives. Like, you, can, you can't judge me. You're not perfect. You can't, you can't judge what I'm doing. Uh, so it's one of those things that's kind of pulled out of context. And people that have no intent of keeping the rest of, the, of, of this book, like for other people to keep this one part of the book. Uh, so so it, gets, it gets ripped apart in that way. But what I want to focus in on is that what people are doing, what, if someone is using this verse as a defense against maybe some, some poor decision making, is they're, they're being defensive actually in, in kind of the way that Jesus means, means for us to hear this verse. That we're, they're being defensive and reacting to the very heart that Jesus is cautioning against right here, which is a judgmental spirit, right? If you have a judgmental spirit and that prompts someone to say, judge not that you be not judged, they're actually interpreting that correctly because Jesus is saying very plainly, don't judge people. But I think it's, it's helpful to, uh, to, to find out what Jesus means by this word judgment, right? So, so judgment as it's, as it's framed here, you, you, could, you can kind of twist this and make it, make it seem like lots of different things, but it's really, it's just... Very plainly, Jesus is saying, as being judgment, being judgmental is as fallible humans, like we all are, making a final statement about someone's quality or worth before the Lord, right? To, to condemn them, right? Not to, not to make it positive, but to make it negative, right? Jesus is saying, you don't have the right to condemn people. You don't have the right to judge people as condemned. He says, don't do it. It's very clear right here. So I, I don't want to mince words there. I don't want to kind of throw this verse under the bus. What Jesus is saying here, he, he elaborates in verse 2. He says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus is, is telling us to steer clear of this temptation to be judgmental because it's not aligned with kingdom values. 
So let me elaborate on what I, what I mean there. So this, this verse actually fits in, this judge not, uh, and this, this whole, the, the idea that um, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. It fits right in with other things that we've already studied in Matthew. You don't have to look with me, but, but back in Matthew 5, we encountered two of these where, where Jesus says uh, about loving your enemies. He, said, you know, he says, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then even more clearly, he says in 6.14, he says, For if you forgive others their trespass, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespass, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This kind of reflexive meaning Jesus likes to use to illustrate a point. This is, this is that same, the same kind of thing, and it fits right in. So Jesus is, is cautioning us against a judgmental spirit because of what it reveals about us. Right. So it, it hints at a deeper problem. You see... The, the, the first thing that it hints at is that we see ourselves as falsely justified, right? I look on myself with an inaccurate light, and that causes me to look on others as falsely condemned, to look on them in an inaccurate light. So it's like this idea of, like, I see your sin, but not mine. It's kind of what Jesus is getting at, right? It's, it's that my sin is not bad like yours. Your sin is worse than mine. I'm, I'm different than you. And what this does is it denies the reality that you yourself, that everyone in this room, everyone within the sound of my voice, is condemned in their sin without Christ. And being judgmental ignores that reality. And it shows that that my hope, if I'm being that way, that my hope is not in God's grace, but it's in my own ability to obey. It's kind of like, this is about me. And and then verse 5, Jesus goes on. Or let's read, let's read uh, three, 3 through 5. It says, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus is just saying very plainly, Put the spotlight on your sin first, and then let that determine how you treat another sinner. Because you yourself are a sinner as well. A judgmental spirit does this. It just shows plainly that you have not seen your own condemnation. You've not seen it accurately, or you've stopped believing that it's true for some reason, even though it's only by God's good graces that you might not be condemned on that final day. And so as a follower of Christ, if you are in Christ, you should be displaying the grace towards others that Christ has displayed towards you. That's, that's in keeping with everything Jesus has said so far, especially here with this judgmental spirit. And, and this, this actually leads us into verse 6, where Jesus kind of is tie, he's tying something else in. And they, they seem like opposing ideas, but Jesus is, is trying to tie these together for us. Because there's this tendency as we, as, we, as we spot this judgmental spirit in ourselves to just lose all discernment, right? Well, I can't judge anybody, so I'm just, I'm just not going to, I'm just, okay, everything, it just is what it is. And I put on blinders to sin, not just in my life, but in the lives of other people. And that's also not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, he's saying, you have to have discernment. And so the first warning is against having a judgmental spirit. The second warning is against lacking discernment. And this is a weird verse, guys. I'm going to give that to you. And there's a lot here that we don't have time to get into today, but this is one of those things that I hope you hear it and you're like, what does Jesus mean? And you go to the book, right? Study it. Jesus says this in verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. So this, this, again, this is a tricky verse, but let's just break it down. Jesus is saying, don't give dogs what is holy. When, when Jesus says dogs, he doesn't mean like pet dogs. Like, we like dogs in our culture. 
first century Palestinian Jews did not like dogs. They were like, kind of like giant street rats. Kind of like what we would consider if you had just like raccoons just running around your neighborhood, right? Like things that get into stuff and tear things and tear things up and steal things. He's saying, don't throw to the dogs what is holy. He's saying, if, it's, it's, like, it's like if you make a nice three-course meal for your family and then just throw it out to the raccoons or throw it out to the dogs, like, that's dumb. They don't care. You could have thrown them scraps. Like, they don't care. They're not, they're not discerning. But you need to be. The same thing with the pigs. This, this image of, like, like pigs are, 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 are an unclean animal to the Jews. But, so, so there's that aspect to it. But it's also this idea that, like, if you went to a pig pen, I don't know if any of you have ever been around pigs, but um, they love to eat stuff. And if you went to a pig pen and you had, like, something in your hand and they thought it was food, and then you just threw some pearls on the ground... They would be like, oh, I want some of that, whatever that white shiny thing is, right? And they go and they eat it, and it's just like in their teeth, and they're trying to chomp on these pearls, and it's breaking their teeth, and it's crunchy. They'd be super disappointed, right? And then they'd be hungry, and then they'd turn and attack you because you're the one that fed them this nasty thing that they don't want. What Jesus, the broad truth here that Jesus is trying to get us to apply here is that the truths of the gospel... That the light that Jesus is shining on, on reality and who he is and who we are, that we are sinners separated from God by our sin, but that Christ has come in the flesh to redeem us by his perfect life, his resurrection, and his death and his resurrection, that's a precious truth. It's a precious thing. Don't, don't disregard how important that truth is. So we need to apply that truth discerningly. We need to share that truth discerningly with people who need to hear it and will respond to it and not despise it and then we also need to expect rejection because of that message just like just like these dogs and, and the pigs because as we turn from from judgment uh, a judgmental spirit we don't want to lose sight of what the news of Jesus' kingdom really is that it's number one it's not a self-evident truth right it's not something that you can just write on a post-it note like the weather and hand to somebody and they're like oh Okay, I got that. It's not self-evident. There's a spiritual work that goes along with it. And so people will hate it, and they will reject it, and they will reject you and me because it interrupts their own self-centered worldview. Do you, you get where I'm going with this? Like it's, not, it's not self-evident in that way. It has to be revealed to you by the Lord. And not only that, but it's, it's a truth that's inconvenient. John, Jesus says this in John 15, 18 and 19. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Right? You have to be prepared for that rejection. And then, and then this, this other truth, that, so it's, it's not self-evident, but it's also it's not good news for everybody. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.15, he says, For we are the aroma of, of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from, from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Paul is simply saying here that, that, and we talked about this last week, that the gospel is both the worst news and the best news all at once. And if you're willing to hear the bad news and say, I'm a sinner, I'm separated from God, I need Christ, I'm going to submit to him, then the good news is yours. But if you won't face that truth, then it's not good news, it's just inconvenient for you. Right? It's just telling you you're wrong and you're condemned, and I, and I don't want to hear that. Jesus is saying, hold these truths as precious because they are a treasure, and don't let others steal that from you. Be discerning in how you think about it, trust it, apply it, and share it. And so Jesus goes on in verse 7, and he says this. And this is his, his final warning here about lacking perseverance. 
He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives, who asks, receives. And to the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. We'll look at the rest of this section in a second. But I just, I just want to note this, that this warning here is, is not, it's not like the other two. It's, it's, a, it's a positive warning, if that makes sense. So it's not telling you not to do something. It's telling you to do something, right? It's telling you to ask, seek, and knock. And, and what Jesus is doing here is, is he's illustrating for us that being in the kingdom is not a passive thing. If you're going to be in Christ, it's, it's not going to be by accident. You're not just going to wake up one day and be like, oh, I follow Jesus now. Cool. Like, it's, it's not one of those things. This is an active, an, an active process that we participate in. The life in the kingdom, life in Jesus' kingdom is an active thing. And that maybe here, and this is, I was trying to think of like how Jesus is thinking about this as he's phrasing it. I think maybe he's anticipating some of our questions that we might have at this point in the Sermon on the Mount. That he's think, maybe we're thinking like, how do I be poor in spirit? Like, how do I, how do, I do these things? How do, how do I pray these prayers? You know, how do I discern rightly, Jesus? How do I get into the kingdom? How do I stay in the kingdom? And Jesus is unequivocally not saying it's by determination. Okay, so don't hear me saying that. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that if you just have a go-getter attitude, you're going to make it because you won't. That's not what Jesus is saying. But rather, and this is the way D.A. Carson phrased it, and I love this. He says, it, it's, a, it's a demonstration of a trusting persistence. A trusting persistence. This trust that I see the reality, that I am separated from a holy God by my sin. But I'm going to trust because God said so and because I've seen it in the scriptures that Jesus has taken that penalty. My trust is in him and I'm going to press into his kingdom based on that truth. It's a trusting persistence. And so we must persist in pursuing Jesus, right? Because being a kingdom dweller is an active thing and it requires pursuit. Think about how the, the New Testament scriptures they bear this out for us, right? Think, think about Paul when he says, you must run the race with endurance. That's doing something, right? You must press on for the prize of the upward call. James talks about this a lot. He says, show your faith by your works. Even the end of Matthew, Jesus' last command to us, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's doing stuff. That's doing stuff as members of the kingdom. But maybe you're asking, like, why? Why should I persist? Like, why, why do I need to press into the kingdom? Like, I'm kind of I'm there. Like, why do I need to? Because look at this truth, church. Like, no one who seeks the kingdom will not find it. You won't fail. There's no one who sees the insurmountable obstacle of, of perfect obedience and your total hypocrisy and your chronic anxiety and your absolute failure to uphold the law and then turns to Jesus, you will never be disappointed again. Why would you not press into that? Because if you, if you come to Jesus with the, with the poor spirit that he, that he talks about in 5 verse 3, if you come to him with that poor and bankrupt spirit, Jesus is there to embrace you, right? And to bring you in, and not just to bring you in to sit around and do nothing, but to give you purpose in that kingdom. And it's full stop. It's guaranteed. To illustrate this, Jesus points us back to, to a really important truth. Starting in, in verse 9, he says, or which one of you, if his sons asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? To illustrate this point, Jesus, Jesus points us back to this truth that, that he showed us in the Lord's Prayer back in chapter 6. But he says, God is not a slave master. 
And God is not some sort of indifferent puppeteer for the world, but he is a father, and he fathered you. That God gives like a good father. Even, even bad fathers here on earth know how to take care of people, right? Even a bad father will, will occasionally do the right thing. And Jesus is using that as an example to say, if even you who are evil will do that, how much more will God be a righteous father? God does not give begrudgingly, right? He gives willingly. If you ask and seek and knock, he will willingly, lovingly, and sacrificially answer everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. He will give you what you ask for. He will give you the wisdom. He will give you the discernment. So persist because you have nothing to lose that is not already lost and everything to gain. It's yours in Jesus. And here's the thing, and, and D.A. Cart, there's like four different books that I read that had this exact same, exact same idea. They said, essentially, that you're not going to find anyone in the kingdom, uh, or he says, obedience doesn't get you into the kingdom. That's not what Jesus is saying, that obedience gets you into the kingdom. Jesus' obedience gets you into the kingdom. Obedience doesn't get you into the kingdom, but you won't find anyone who wasn't there who wasn't obedient. Right? And essentially he's saying, you're not going to find anyone in the kingdom who didn't want to be there, who pressed into the kingdom because they saw it as the good thing that it is, as mine in Christ. I want more of that. So that's why we press on. So right here is where, is where Jesus starts to sum things up, and he's going to make a turn in verse 12, and he's going to give us our one rule, right? He's going he's to say that the whole law and the prophets can be summed up in this one rule, this golden rule. That everything we need to know about what's required to be in God's kingdom is this. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, this is the verse that gets uh, just like, don't ju- judge not, that you not be judged. This is another verse that gets kind of thrown into the wind as just like some conventional wisdom. And I want us to move away from that. But I think it's important to understand what the golden rule is. Yeah, the golden rule is not called the golden rule for any other reason than like, I think it's like in the, in the Middle Ages or something. Like, like I think it was uh, some, some Roman emperor like inscribed this verse in gold over his throne. That's why we call it the golden rule. Anyways, the golden rule here is interesting and it's, it's not because this is super unique. Like, it's not novel to Jesus' day. Like, this isn't something no one has ever heard before, which I think is interesting because sometimes we think maybe the power of Jesus' teaching is how novel it is. But it's not Jesus just taking, taking half-truths and clarifying them. So this is, this is not novel because there was a rabbi in, that was one of Jesus' contemporaries, and he said this. He said, whatever is dreadful to you, do not do to others. And you can see how those are really similar, Right? But, but, but they have a subtle, a subtle but important difference, right? Because this rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, his is in the negative form. He's saying the emphasis is on not doing something, right? The emphasis is on if there's something bad, don't do that thing, which makes sense, right? I said that to my kids. Like, when you're about to do something bad, don't. Good advice, Dad. But Jesus flips this conventional wisdom on its head, and he clarifies it, that it's not avoiding evil, that is the value of the kingdom, but it's pursuing righteousness. And this same idea that we just talked about, this pursuit. So Jesus flips this, and, and, and he does it because this more accurately reflects the kingdom values. And think about it this way. Like, a condemned person, right? So, someone who's trying to earn their way to heaven. All that they're trying to do is just avoid evil. That's the mindset of someone who is under the burden of the law, right? You're under the burden of the law, life is heavy and hopeless, 
you're really just hoping to get into God's good graces by the skin of your teeth, right? You're just trying to not be as bad as the last guy because you realize, like, man, doing good is hard. I'm just going to try and avoid evil, and I'll just try and break even, maybe. That's your only hope is just to avoid doing bad things. But, but in the kingdom, as one who is saved and redeemed in Christ, your truth is different than that, right? A saved person who, who knows that by God's grace, and the blood of Jesus, that I'm saved from the penalty of my sin, I'm free to pursue God in everything I do. I'm free to press into the kingdom because I'm no longer burdened by, by this rule-keeping and this law-following. Right? I'm not weighed down by my sin, but I'm set free in Christ to press into the kingdom. There's one other thing that we need to note here, too, is that, that I think the way the golden rule is, is often communicated is it's like, it's like a life hack, right? It's like this and Jesus doesn't want that. He doesn't want you to see this as to take this one, this verse 12, as some final rule for healthy living, right? Because the golden rule is not a life hack any more than Jesus is a life coach. This is not what he's doing here. Because in reality, the golden rule doesn't get you into heaven, but confessing Jesus is Lord is what gets you into heaven. Just like in Romans 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the gospel. So the golden rule won't save you, but once you're in the kingdom by God's good grace through Christ, the golden rule will be your life as you live as a kingdom dweller. So it describes the life of the redeemed believer, not a path to get into the kingdom. And what Jesus is doing here in summarizing the law, notice how he ends that. For this is the law and the prophets. And that's the part that we leave off of this verse all the time. Jesus is summarizing the law one more time. He's already done that. In several other places, right? When he says in, in 5.17, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He says in 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then, and then he says uh, in 5.48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Verse 12 is this exact same type of verse. It's a summation of the law, of the requirements of the law. So Jesus is calling us back to look at those things. Because Jesus isn't pointing to, to rules that we must obey in order to be saved. But Jesus is pointing us to himself. If you can, if you can quickly get there, Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. This is, this is Christ as described by Paul in, in Philippians. He said, Christ Jesus, who though he was, in the, he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Friends, Jesus is the golden rule. It's not a rule for us to follow, but a rule for us to reflect on that Jesus has completed for us. We, we, we can't get into the kingdom by the golden rule, but it describes us once we find ourselves in Christ because Jesus is the golden rule in the flesh. He is the summary of the law and the prophets because he has done that, as Paul describes in Philippians 2. He's the one who's gone not just to do to others what, what he would have them do to him, but beyond, right? Because Christ dies for us while we are still yet sinners. Jesus is the golden rule in the flesh. And so if you approach verse 12 and think, I'll just do better. Yeah, I'll just do that. I'll just do better. Stop it. Remember last week, right? Stop it. Stop. You've missed it. Because this is just going to be one more rule that you're, not, that you're going to fail to obey on your way to trying to earn your way into the kingdom. And on that final day, you'll stand before God 
right? And he'll ask, why should I spare you from judgment? And you'll say, I was pretty good at keeping the golden rule. And then what he'll say to you, just the same thing he says in verse 5, in chapter 5, verse 48, but were you perfect? And you're going to say, no, because you weren't. But the truth is, is that, that Christ was perfect. Christ is perfect, and he has offered himself for us, for you. So, so don't run. This is all I'm saying. Elaborate way of saying this. Don't run to the golden rule as guidance for life if you have not first run to Christ for redemption from sin. Don't get them out of order. Jesus is the only path to redemption. And so he ends the Sermon on the Mount. This is kind of the ending of the Sermon on the Mount before a little summary here in the last few verses. He ends the Sermon on the Mount with this object lesson that's about his exclusive claim as the Lord and Savior. Because he's the only one who can say the things he's saying. And so he's going he's gonna to describe for us two choices, all right? And, and these two choices are going to come in, in several forms here. But the first one is he's going to describe for us two gates, okay? And again, I, I apologize for my, my paltry attempt at alliteration, but just you, you, you forgive me, I, I trust, okay? So two gates, and this is really the only alliteration, the G that works, and this is what I've tried to base all the other ones off of. <laughs> Jesus says this, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus is picturing here this wide, spacious gate that enters into a wide and easy road that is traveled and filled by, with lots of people. Okay? That's the image. The, the thing that we don't want to miss, though, is that while this gate is wide... And there's lots of people on this very easy-looking road. Where does it lead? Well, it leads to destruction. So in contrast, there is another gate that's very small. It's a very narrow gate, right? And on the other side of it is a rough, cramped road with not very many people on it. So if we just were to look at these without the destination in mind, if we were just to look at the gate and the road just based on their desirability alone, with no regard to the destination, which gate seems to be the best? The wide gate with the easy road, right? The wide gate is good. There's, there's lots of room for all my baggage. I'll have, I'll have plenty of company. I'll, ha I'll, I'll have plenty of room for my self-righteousness and my sin. Not much is required of me. Lots of people will be around me to, to just kind of hang out with, right? But Jesus is saying that there's, there's, there's one way into the kingdom. And, and the problem here is that when we factor in the destination of where these roads lead, that one is infinitely better, right? That no matter what the gate looks like, or how narrow it is, or how rough the path is, if I know what's at the end, that's going to change which road I pick if I'm focused on where they end up. Jesus is saying there's one way into the kingdom, and it's exclusive, and it's difficult, and it's restrictive, and it's unpopular even, but it leads to life. So which one will you take? Because the narrow gate will require much of you. It will require confession and repentance and losing your baggage of sin and facing your shame and leaving the world behind. Which will you choose? Will you choose the easy way that goes to destruction or the hard way, the narrow way, through Christ that leads to life? And this is, this is where people get hung up. And this is, I understand this. I think I thought this as I was, when I was younger, before I knew the Lord. A lot of people get hung up on the exclusivity of Jesus. Right, like, well, how can Jesus be the only way, right? And, and Ferguson Sinclair gives a really helpful, timely analogy, and he gave this analogy like 15 years ago. 
Uh, and he gives the analogy of a deadly virus that's, that's sweeping the globe. Everyone's getting it, and if you get it, you die. And he says, what if in that situation, someone popped up, one person says, I have a cure. And in every instance that I administer this cure to you, you will be saved from this disease. Would we then stand up and say, I don't know, that's pretty exclusive. Like, since you're the only one that has it, that's not really fair. I'm going to wait till some more people have access to that. And then when there's some more options, then I'll make a decision about it. No, you wouldn't do that, you dummy. Like, you would, you would be like, yes, I'll take the cure. Mm-hmm. Yep, I don't want to die. You have the cure. I'll take it. Right? We're not, we're not going to have qualms about that. The problem is, friends, is that we do have a disease. And it's called sin. And that Jesus is the only cure. And so our, why do we stand and question that Jesus is the cure simply because he says he's the only one? It's only if we think of our sickness as not that bad or maybe not even there at all. The truth is that it is there and that you do need a cure and that you are ailing and that you are dying. And without the cure that comes from Jesus' blood to save you from your sin, you have no hope. So cling to that one hope. Jesus is saying, it's me or nothing. It's me or death. He goes on, and he's going to give us two giveaways, right? So Jesus is going to, he's going to warn us about false teachers. They're going to take this basic truth, right, of Jesus' exclusivity, his sole claim that he is the one and only way to be saved, and they're going to pervert this. So he says this, he says, beware of false prophets, right? Jesus is just good at anticipating what we might be thinking. He's, he's, you know, it's almost like he's God and he's really smart. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will not recognize them by their, you will recognize them by their fruits. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. And a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And thus you will recognize them by their fruits. The first thing Jesus says here, as he's warning about false teachers, is it's, it's, really, it's really intuitive. It's really simple, though. He talks about that they will come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they will be wolves. And I was just realizing, like, the, the truth is that false teachers don't advertise themselves to be the liars that they truly are, right? It's not like every false teacher stands up and be like, hey, uh, I'm a false teacher. I don't really preach the whole gospel, and if you do what I say, you won't be saved, but you should come and follow me anyways. Like, if, he, if they did that, we wouldn't, we wouldn't follow them, because that's just, that's just dumb, right? We want truth. D.A. Carson says that a disciple of Jesus, disciples of Jesus are not very susceptible to open invitations to sin, right? If we knew what we were getting into, we would be like, hey, hang on, I don't, I don't think this is good, right? That would be our reaction. The ones that lead us astray, though, the, the, the false teachers, the false prophets that will lead us astray, they're going to entice us with words that are eerily similar to our Lord's, and this is where we have to be careful. Because we are Jesus' sheep, and Jesus is telling us that the false teachers are going to come dressed in wool, like, they, they're gonna, it's going to be tricky. So what do we do? Well, Jesus gives us a tool, right? And, and he, gives us, he gives us two giveaways. And I was telling Matt this morning, I said, I wrote that there's two giveaways, but I actually have four here. So I'm going to give you two giveaways and then two bonus ones. So there you go. You get more than you paid for. So Jesus says, you, false teachers, you need to look for the fruit. Okay, the, the first one, the main one here, that I, I think a way that we can spot these is that this fruit will always betray them because they will always point to themselves rather than to the cross. 
A false teacher will point to themselves. There's something special about them, about the way they teach, about their words, their ministry, right? Their truth, their brand of thinking, right? There's, there's something about me. It, it all, always comes back to me that a false teacher is always about themselves, even if it's subtle. But that's what you have to look for. That's the first fruit to look for. The second one, the second giveaway here, is that they will not emphasize the exclusivity of Jesus just like Jesus just did. They will not, they will not emphasize the exclusivity of Christ. Why? Well, this, that's unpopular, right? If I, if I stand up here and tell you, listen, there is one way to be saved, and you have to turn from your sin and cling to Jesus as your one and only hope and then follow him in obedience, that is offensive to people. And when you say offensive things, guess what? Not a lot of people want to hang out with you unless they believe that very thing. And so they will not emphasize this truth that Jesus is exclusive because it might turn people away. Now, here's your first bonus one. That they will always emphasize one aspect of God's character or one scripture to the exclusion of others. I mean, the prosperity gospel is, is a prime example of this. Or, or even like this, this a word of faith, kind of like name it, claim it, self-help gospel. Right? What we're emphasizing is God's love and God's mercy over and against his justice and his holiness. Right? And we look at Christ's good works and his doing good things to the exclusion of his, the penalty that our sins caused him to have to pay on the cross. That's what false teachers do. The, 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 the fourth one here is that they will not store treasures in, they will store treasures on earth rather than in heaven. Because one thing that being a false teacher does for a lot of people when they get popular is it gives you an opportunity to make a lot of money. And so you can always see a false teacher by how, how they use their resources. Do they make themselves look good and make themselves comfortable? Or do they make Jesus look good? Do they make Christ look good with their resources? So those are, those are four things. Those two and two bonuses. Two, the, the, the giveaways that show us what a false teacher is. Jesus then, he continues to go. And these fall right in line with these, with these false teachings. He gives us two, this is called two go-aways, right? Because Jesus tells two different kinds of people to go away, to depart from me. Right? So these are the two go-aways that kind of tie in to these, this false teaching. So Jesus says this. Look with me in verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus, what are you talking about there? Well, Jesus, he's, first of all, he's, he's telling go away to a procrastinator. Right? As a professional procrastinator, I can relate to this. Jesus, Jesus is saying that on that last day, right, that, that this, this is that person. It's none other than that person who has lived however they liked, right? And they have ignored the message of the gospel, right? They've ignored every inclination to follow the scriptures. And, and then on judgment day, they find themselves before the Lord. And at that moment, they decide to cry, Lord, Lord, probably because everybody else is doing it too. And they're like, oh, Lord, Lord, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, right? But Jesus is saying, you missed the boat, man. The time for repentance is now. It, it's not now. It, it, was, it was back then, right? It's, it's, it's gone. You, you were, if you're falling in line when the hour has come and the time for judgment is at hand, that was not a good plan. You have missed your opportunity to repent. And so Jesus is telling the procrastinator to go away. He says, you, you need to, and, and that's our invitation this morning, right? Every time you hear the word preached, it's an opportunity to turn from sin, to repent. And so Jesus is saying that to us this morning. Repent now and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3, 8. The other person that Jesus says go away to is the prideful. 
He says, on that day, many will, this is verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That's tough. Jesus is talking about this person here who points on that day of judgment. They point to their, to their worthiness to be in the kingdom based on their many deeds. And maybe it's even a life of wonderful good works, doing lots of great things for, for poor people or, or sick people or children or, or digging wells in poor parts of the world, right? But all of those good works without repentance mean nothing. Their hope, this person's hope, this, this prideful person's hope is in their ability to perform good works. But Jesus will turn them away and condemn them. Not necessarily because they lacked good works, right? But because they remained in their sin. And that's the fundamental truth of the gospel. That, that it's as much about what you believe and where your hope is as what you do. We must trust Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so this leads Jesus to his, his final point here. This final, very clear claim on his exclusive, his exclusive power to save Verse 24, everyone then who hears those words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus here is, is picturing God's judgment, the final judgment for sin, whether it's at the end of your life uh, or, and, or on that final day or both. That this, He's picturing God's judgment as the storm. And there's two people that are choosing a place where to build their house, where to found their life, right? So this is where Jesus' claim to authority becomes, becomes very, very clear because he says, he says, uh, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man. Jesus is making a very exclusive claim there. I have the monopoly on wisdom, Jesus says. I have the monopoly on the truth that will explain to you what the kingdom is and how to get into it. So Jesus pictures these two builders who choose very different locations for where to, where to build their house. And then when God's judgment comes, like, like the storm, the one with the strong foundation stands and the other one falls and is destroyed. And Jesus is saying very exclusively that my words are the sure foundation. Me and me alone. That's Jesus' claim. That I am the only one who can make you withstand God's judgment because he alone, Jesus alone, has paid the penalty for sin. And no one else can make that claim. Jesus alone. That is the exclusivity of the gospel. And that's where Jesus lands on the Sermon of the Mount. Right? It's me. It's me. I'm the gate. I'm the rock. Found yourself on me. And so, verses 28 and 29, they're simple, but there's an incredible truth to be drawn from this. Verse 28 says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Astonished, right? And I think we would have been too had we been there. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. How did the scribes teach? They taught, like, any other human, like, like, like Matt could probably test this better than anyone in the room with PhD, that to sound credible and to make your point well, you have to reference other people, right? If I want to be credible, I need to show you where I went to school, the jobs that I've had, the books that I've written, other people who have cited me, and I'm going to cite all these other people, and I'm going to present to you a case, and you can be like, eh, 
I don't know. Jesus does none of that because he doesn't have to. Because he has authority. And not just like authority like a king on earth has authority, but like the God of the universe has authority. He can say these things and reference no one but himself in Scripture. And the people saw that. And there's two ways to respond to that truth, and they're demonstrated for us in this text right here. We're almost done. The two ways to respond, the first one is to recognize Jesus' authority, right? And that's exactly what we see the crowds here. Remember in the beginning of the sermon, we saw there were crowds and disciples, right? And we kind of we threw some shade at the crowds because they were the people that were kind of there to see what was going on, but not necessarily submitted to who Christ is. And he references here again the crowds, right? So those who maybe are just there to kind of see what Jesus says, but not really sure, they were astonished. So they recognized people who had not submitted to the Lord as, as their Savior, recognized that Jesus had authority, but that's where it ended, right? The Pharisees and the crowds, they saw that Jesus had authority, and what does James 2.19 tell us? But that even the demons see that Jesus is God, and they shudder, but yet they are not saved because all they do is recognize Jesus' authority because then the second thing that has to happen is you have to submit to Jesus' authority. Like the narrow gate, like the strong foundation, we must act on this truth, church, Every one of us, every day, we must act on this truth. That we, we can't walk through life however we want and then just decide at the end, I'll just pick whichever one is better. We're going to get there and be like, Lord, Lord, I choose you now. And Jesus is going to be like, you should have chose me then. You choose where to build your foundation before you build the house. And you choose the gate to walk through before you get to the destination. That's what Jesus is saying. Choose you this day. And some of us here today, we've, we've walked through that gate years ago, long time ago. But here's where we've been. We've been standing on the other, just on the other side of that gate. We haven't even gone down the path yet. We've walked through the gate, and we've just been looking back to the, to the other, the wider gate with the smoother path. And we've just been thinking, like, did I make the right decision? Like, man, it seems nice over there. Just been do whatever I want. Bring all my baggage with me. Lots of people to hang out with. Don't forget, church. That looks good. The wide gate and the easy path looks good. But where does it lead? Look to where it leads. It leads to destruction. But the way is, is narrow and cramped and difficult once we're on this side of the gate in Christ. Look towards the destination, church, that Christ has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and is not anything in your life on this earth worth giving up, casting off, so that I might walk and run this race with endurance. So we have to put, put foot on the gas. We have to decide. We've we, we, we got we to make a decision, right? We, we can't straddle this fence anymore, right? I have to choose Christ and I have to press in because it's worth it. Because God has guaranteed results for me if I will lean on Jesus. Some of us here today, though, we still need to pick a gate. You've been standing there looking at one gate and then the other, looking at one gate and then the other. You walk down the wide gate for a while, like, I don't know, maybe I'll backtrack and try this. We need to pick a gate because... If we haven't yet resolved to submit to Christ, we end up just like the crowds and just like the Pharisees, recognizing Jesus' authority, but not submitting to it. We're kind of tantalized by the idea of Jesus, by the idea of salvation, but I'm yet to submit myself to Christ because I prefer my sin. I prefer my selfishness. I prefer my self-righteousness. But friends, it leads to destruction because the day is coming where that decision is going to be too late to be made. 
It could, be, it could be this evening. It could be tomorrow morning. But it will come. And if you are not found in Christ on that day, you will have no hope. So that's Jesus' invitation to us this morning. To choose him, the narrow gate, the sure foundation. And to not just choose it and then linger on the other side of the gate, but to press on into the kingdom and the glory and the riches that await us if we will trust our good heavenly Father to give us every good gift, to give the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt, everything that he has promised them in Christ. Because if he would give us Christ, would he not graciously give us all things? And he will. He will. It's guaranteed because of Christ's blood. So make that decision, church, today. Whether you've been in Christ or you're not sure, Choose him today, found your life on him, walk through that gate, and press forward. Let me pray for us.